When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. As politicians take a break from Parliament, we look at four of them who have had quite the year so far. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. For the next four weeks in our special summer series, we're going to look at some of the men and women behind the politician. How do they rise to the top? What makes them tick? And where might they go next? First up... Mr Deputy Speaker, there remains a big task ahead of us to restore our freedoms. Freedoms that, save for the greatest of circumstances, no government should ever wish to curtail. Sajid Javid was appointed Secretary of State for Health and Social Care in June when Matt Hancock was forced to rather spectacularly resign after breaking social distancing guidance while having an affair. It's been a huge honour to serve as Chancellor of the Exchequer. And whilst I was very pleased that the Prime Minister wanted to reappoint me, I was unable to accept the conditions that he had attached. So I felt I was left with no option other than to resign. Javid himself knows all too well what it's like to go through a high-profile resignation. He quit as Chancellor of Johnson's government in the spring of 2020 after refusing the Prime Minister and Dominic Cummings' request to sack all of his advisers. So who is Sajid Javid? To figure that out, I spoke to Salma Shah, who was Javid's special advisor when he was Home Secretary, the Conservative MP Robert Halfon, who was a long-time pal of Javid since they went to university together, and Katie Balls, the Deputy Political Editor of The Spectator. Thank you all so much for coming on. Um, Salma, let's start with you. Um, sum up Sajid Javid for us. Uh, what, what's he like in three words, or maybe maybe a few more if you like? <laughs> I'm not sure I could do it in three words. Um, I think he is a practical, straightforward and hardworking politician, which sounds incredibly boring and sounds like I am just putting a spin on it. But if you ask my honest opinion, the, the best summary of him is is that. Rob, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what he was. You knew him when he was much younger, when he was a student. Tell us a bit about, about him then. Um, yes, I first met um, Sajid when we were at Exeter University, and uh, he's a, uh, a very incredibly decent human being, a huge work ethic, massively motivated. I mean, he just wanted to do as well as he could at university, loved politics. As you can imagine, we were all uh, involved in the Exeter University Conservative Association and very, very active at the time but he was very jolly and very funny and uh, sometimes we don't often see that side of him in public but he's actually a very funny man I'm sure Selma would vouch for that as well. 
he is very funny um, behind the scenes and he has quite a juvenile sense of humour as well um, but he it, and it's interesting that you say that Rob because most people never ever see that side of him because I think he has sort of a professional sort of image and he also has a private one so I, I think you're right there he, he doesn't really share that side of him that much Katie what do we what do we know about Sajid Javid's early political influences and how you know what kind of drives him now we know that he is a that's right. We also know, uh, I think when uh, he's been asked, you know, what was your favourite reading? He talks about Anne Rand, which I think is you know, an indicator of where he sits on, on the Tory spectrum. And I think that he's someone who has come into government and into politics, believing in a slimmed down state. Um, but obviously, as you get into these roles, and particularly in his current one's health secretary, things start to get a bit more complicated. But just, uh, I think the Ayn Rand thing is, is, um, Often people look at Ayn Rand just because she, uh, I mean, I, I have a picture of Ayn Rand in my office. We were all influenced by Ayn Rand at, at Exeter and there were lots of conservative students at the time. But there was another side to Ayn Rand, which wasn't just about the minimalist state. It was actually about refusing to give in to lazy consensus, uh, you know, having an incredible work ethic, working hard. And, you know, you you could achieve anything if you put your put your mind to it and didn't give in to, you know, as I say, the consensus at the time. And The Fountainhead, which is about an architect, um, which he, he loves and uh, quotes from, that that is very much um, what that book is about. You can do anything, whatever your background, wherever you come from. I have, I, I've had a lot of arguments with him about Ayn Rand, who I think is um, actually an appalling writer, and I, I just don't agree with him much of the philosophy. And he used to get very defensive about it, and I think it's the it's the reason that people, you know, people talk about his backstory, you know, and it's sort of like oh, lovely, and it's presented, but that's an experience that he's lived. And I think when you have been the underdog, and there have been so many, uh, well, actually a complete lack of expectation for what you might do or what you might achieve, then, you know, that kind of message, I think, does uh, really resonate with, with people like Sajid, who, who really had to fight for absolutely everything in their, in their lives, from, you know, their political career to even the fact that he's a success, the fact that he went to university, you know, at the time that he did. I would just also say that in terms of his, his political career, he's never actually been this deconstructed Thatcherite. And I think people paint him in a way that doesn't actually look at the actions that he's taken as a government minister, which in lots of cases have been quite interventionist. So things like bringing in the apprenticeship levy, things like introducing the national living wage, he did all of that, uh, which you would argue and was argued at the time was not conservative. And I think very sensibly, he always said that, you know, it's also not conservative for the state to subsidise wages when business should be doing that. So I think when you scratch the surface a little bit, it's not quite as easy as sort of, you know, painting him on the very right of the party and being very economically dry. What, what I would say is that um, I think at the time we just believed that if you had enough economic capital, everything else, you, we believed in the trickle down effect, everything else would transform. And I think what the difference now is that Sajid, people like myself, believe that you have to have social capital and economic capital hand in hand. And Someone mentioned the apprenticeship scheme. I think, you know, the fact that Sajid went to an FE college was fundamental. I think apart from Gavin Williamson, he's the only cabinet minister who has gone to an FE college. Although someone told me recently that Matt Hancock attended one briefly. 
But um, you know that that is manifest. He is always for for more funding for further education. So whilst the establishment and all the kind of university people in the House of Lords were always battling for more university and research money, Sajid always wanted the balance to go back to further education because he understood how important it was, particularly for pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds. Katie, he's he's in this cabinet. He's a bit of an outsider in terms of his background you know Rob kind of touched on that a bit um he's you know famously grew up in it was described as one of the dangerous one of the poorest streets in the country how much do you think that informs his politics now he's obviously then had a very different background in the run to being in politics working in banking but how much do you think that early experience has informed his politics I think as Robin Selma touched on, you have Sajid Javid in terms of his early politics, how he saw the world. You also have someone in terms of, I think, across the spectrum, seen as a strong advocate of social mobility. I think that's something that really drives him. And I think that's clearly linked to his own upbringing and the fact that he wants to have that opportunity for everyone. Um, And I think you can see that in the various briefs he's had. I think in terms of, I suppose, his cabinet colleagues, as Rob was saying, you look at educational backgrounds, I think that in that cabinet, if you look, if you think about having a senior cabinet minister who is an ethnic minority, the others, you look at Kwasi Kwarteng, Rishi Sunak, had pretty wealthy upbringings. And I think Sajid Javid stands up out for the fact that he he didn't have that. And it means you have a, a different voice around the table when you're thinking about how uh, policy decisions affect things. How much do you think, and I guess there's a question to all of you, that Sajid's kind of faith and background and position as an, you know, he's, he's been a trailblazer as an ethnic minority MP in, in various positions, including as Home Secretary. How much do you think that drives him, motivates him? Or do you think it's a sort of lesser consideration for him? Yeah, I think he's incredibly uh, driven. Uh, but in terms of his background, I think he rather sees him, he's more of a role model, that the fact that he can achieve these things and have this success and uh, change things in our country for the better. That's more. It's more of a role model that yes, other people from disadvantaged backgrounds can do the same. He was prepared, wasn't he, Katie, to kind of take on Trump about the Muslim ban. He spoke out about that. One of the sort of few cabinet ministers to really condemn it. Um, there clearly are things that that he is prepared to speak out on that kind of touch a core in him. Yeah, I think we can see in his interventions that he is willing to talk up on various issues, such as in the case of Trump, but issues affecting ethnic minorities, issues on racism. I think at times when other ministers can slightly shy away from it or, you know, avoid the difficult conversation. I think Sajid Javid has a confidence there. And I also think we saw it a bit uh, in the Windrush scandal because he uh, was brought in. I think we can see a history in Sajid Javid's um, cabinet positions of firefighting effectively. He often comes in when there's just been a problem in the department or, um, you know, set in the midst of one. And Amber Rudd had obviously left in the wake of the Windrush scandal. And I think that the rhetoric from Sajid Javid um, had more impact than had it been another minister. And I think that the fact that he was um, condemning some of the things that had happened, I just think it was, a, it was a change of tune in terms of the messaging. And I think you could just see that I think he has an authority on issues, which means he can talk about them in a way that some of his colleagues struggle to. Samad, do you want to talk a little bit about time in, in the Home Office and, and what he felt like? he achieved there or didn't achieve there. It was a very disrupted time in politics, wasn't it? I mean, it was just such a chaotic 
period over Brexit. And, you know, Sajid was seen as replacing Amber Rudd, who'd who'd very much not been a Eurosceptic. He had had Eurosceptic instincts, but eventually backed Remain, possibly out of loyalty to, to George Osborne. What was it like during that period? I think, you know, if you go right back to sort of the result of the referendum campaign, you know, pe- people often say, oh, you know, he, he took a careerist decision, etc. Well, you forget that he was business secretary at the time. And day after day, businesses were trooping in from up and down the country, lots of different sectors saying this is how Brexit will impact us negatively. And that is going to have uh, an impact on the way that you think about Brexit, even if you are naturally Eurosceptic. So I think it's sort of an, a bit of a a bit of an old wives' tale, or you know, it's it's part of the sort of Westminster myth that oh, it was just about sort of political manoeuvring. It it really wasn't for him. So when he went to the Home Office post Windrush, you know, it was a completely different dynamic and something that we hadn't really encountered for the two years previously while these negotiations were going on. You know, in the meantime, we'd obviously had the 2017 election campaign, which at the time, you know, it was being briefed that he was going to be sacked from cabinet. So we had a really, really tumultuous time in the lead up to going to the Home Office. I think what he did really successfully there was he got on with creating the basis for which the Home Office is now sort of functioning in terms of the immigration white paper, sort of designing a new system, in terms of getting the EU settlement scheme up and running. And these are not the types of things that you're going to get massive credit for. You know, these are not sort of headline grabbing reforms, but they are things that actually make the running of government much more efficient. That meant that actually there was a smoother transition once we finally got Brexit done, albeit, you know, not perfect at the border at the moment. Um, but he really did. He really did uh, do what he could to make that operation effective. Katie, how do you, how much do you think he really involved himself in that? In those, you know, there were people who were really key players, weren't there, in that time and in the lead up, all those different meaningful votes in the run up to Theresa May's resignation. How much was was Sajid Javid a kind of key part of of that manoeuvring? I think it's an interesting one because Sajid Javid obviously backed Remain, and I think that. That has not been forgotten to this day. And, I, and I'm sure, as our panelists say, people can overfocus on it because Sajid Javid has some Eurosceptic tendencies. But I think it meant when it came to those debates, you had certain cabinet ministers who were in uh, very uh, clear camps on both sides. Um, so you knew which way they would push in terms of these debates, the ones who look in terms of a resignation watch. And then I think figures such as Sajid Javid were seen more as the pragmatists and almost bellwethers in terms of where they were going. It gave you an indication of, of where the, the general mood was on these because it, it was harder to predict. Rob, he he ran for leader when Theresa May resigned. Boris was, you know, obviously the massive front runner in that, although you know, there was clearly a, a very significant stop Boris wing of the party. Um, how did Javid feel about that? Did he feel like he was in the stop Boris camp? Was he running to get a good cabinet position? Did he genuinely think he could win? Well, we I co-chaired his parliamentary campaign with um, Matthew Elliott, and we got to the quarterfinals. We did we did pretty well, but he 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 wanted to win. It was nothing to do with the Boris or whoever was favourite at the time. Initially, people thought it was going to be a lot of people thought it was going to be Dominic Raab, and Dominic Raab was knocked out before uh, Sajid was, but he believed that he could be 
uh, leader. And um, if it had gone to the country, as in the party in the country, um, he felt that he had a good chance. And, but I, I, I think it wasn't about cabinet positioning at all. I, I really felt that he believed that he had a chance. Um, but of course, the Brexit thing didn't help. I mean, I remember some concerns of MPs saying uh, to him and to me that no way because of his position on Brexit. But I do think a lot of that has died out now because I remember one of the MPs who was particularly vexed um, about uh, the Brexit issue and about Sajid's position and said he would never vote for Sajid in a million years, subsequently wrote Sajid uh, a letter, um, you know, saying, you know, that he was delighted that he was back in the in in the cabinet. So I really think that that is not an issue in the way that it was was in the past. I think that leadership campaign was interesting, though, because there was quite a lot of hype about Sajid Javid in advance. I think, as Rob says, Boris Johnson only really became the proper favourite once he realised he could get from the parliamentary stages. There, there was some sense that actually does he have the MPs to back him, which seems strange now, but at the time it didn't feel like a Dundee. And I think what was, I think, frustrating for Alice of Sajid Javid was it just took a long time for that campaign to get off the ground. It really, even though he did finish, uh, you know, very far along, he did get far along. I remember it being quite a slow starting campaign. I think it struggled to have much uh, cut through or make noise because there were so many horses in this race. And I think that it did expose, I think, one of Sajid Javid's weaknesses in the sense that I think he is regarded by his colleagues as incredibly competent and decent, but as a communicator, he can struggle to articulate or, uh, you know, get out his vision. And I think we saw that in that campaign, at least in the beginning. Katie, maybe you can sum up for us what, what happened next, you know, as Chancellor. What, what, it was certainly a short-lived tenure in, the, in a sort of, again, a pretty chaotic period of time while, the, you know, trying to force through the Brexit vote, you know, Parliament being prorogued, judicial review and then you know a massive fallout with Dominic Cummings this is at the peak of Dominic Cummings power really in number 10 so it was always framed around the vote leave team and Sajid Javid rather than really anything personal with the prime minister who he's always got on well with and there have been various briefings about um you know were Sajid's team behind various things and likewise were the other side hitting back and it got to the day and I think Everyone just presumed the first bit of the reshuffle would be the quickest, uh, you know, confirming everyone staying in great offices of state. You're waiting for an update, takes a bit longer. Oh, I'm sure it's nothing, takes a little bit longer. And then you start to realise, actually, we have a problem because we've had no news and people are in uh, 10 Downing Street for these meetings. And then it emerges that Sajid Javid has resigned. He has left his role as Chancellor. And this was because he was ultimately (laughs) presented with a choice that wasn't really a choice. Um, Number 10 had effectively said he could stay on as Chancellor, but only if he got rid of his entire team of special advisors and um, he decided that was not something he could uh, live with or go with. So he he chose to go and and Rishi Sunak was brought in. Um, But I think to lose a chancellor is a dramatic moment for any prime minister. And from that moment on, there was a question about whether there was a way back because Sajid Javid had done what many wouldn't do and did and after that he did this in his quotes where he was standing up to Dominic Cummings and he was being critical of Dominic Cummings and while there are lots of Tory MPs and ministers who are now back then it was something that was not done in the slightest. Well here you go I mean this is the classic example if you want to talk about Ayn Rand and the Fountainhead and about Sajid being the fighter he was the only one that stood up for what he actually thought was right and stood up to the Prime Minister and said what he thought 
And, you know, given that he's back in the cabinet and in the most prominent position there is, particularly during a pandemic as health secretary, I'd say Dominic Cummings was the one that underestimated him. And actually, given his life experience and given the fact that he's a fighter, you know, blaggers like Cummings really should uh, think again before taking them on. It was quite extraordinary because straight after the 2019 election, Sajid had his 50th birthday, Boris and Carrie were there, I was there, and it was a great event. And then uh, a few weeks later, um, Sajid had given up one of the most important posts in, in government. I mean, who would do that? I think it was one of his great, great moments and it showed that he wanted to be someone of integrity and he was not going to be a eunuch chancellor and not be threatened by, by certain individuals, as, as Selma has just highlighted. He's back in the cabinet now, having spent quite a, you know, there's been ex-cabinet ministers who've, you know, spoken out at critical junctures to criticise what the government's doing. I'm sort of thinking more about people like Jeremy Hunt. He's been pretty loyal. He was clearly waiting for a chance to return, especially after after Cummings' departure. Do you think it's fair to talk about him as being more libertarian than Hancock, more keen to open up? And, and does that open up problems for him later down the line? I don't think that's a libertarian instinct at all. I think this is, and I think he's been quite clear on this, that actually as health secretary, he cannot just be the health secretary for COVID. And when you look at the waiting list situation and you look at those people who are not taking routine appointments for things that could end up being very, very serious, I think it's not really a freedom argument. It is a, we have to do a risk assessment of the risk of COVID versus other health considerations. And also economic considerations, which is why this kind of constant loop into lockdown and out of lockdown, you know, he understands the impact that that's going to have, not just kind of like immediately on, you know, the restaurant sector, but actually what it's what it's doing, what the uncertainty is doing, you know, long term to the economic picture of the, of the UK. So I don't I don't think it's fair to characterise him in a way that's kind of, you know, it, it, it's very extreme would be sort of the, like the Lawrence Foxes and the anti-maskers and the anti-vaxxers. And I think people conflate these things without really looking at the nuance of it. Yeah, I, I think if you're looking at the scale and if we go into the, you know, the doves versus hawks, which obviously can be a bit of a clumsy way of defining this. But I do think it's fair to say that if you look at Sajid Javid's interventions from the backbenchers during that time out between Chancellor and Health Secretary, uh, he does fit into the more the hawkish end of the party. But as Selma points out, that's not a Lawrence Fox place. I think that's the probably a quite centre opinion of in terms of the Tory parliamentary party, in terms of getting back to a place of personal responsibility. But I also think when, when people look at some of those comments, like, for example, he said, you know, run the economy hot in terms of lifting restrictions at one point. Um, he was talking about this thinking about the economy as a former chancellor. And obviously, now he's health secretary, he's looking at things from a public health perspective so you are uh, you know having to make different calculations so I don't think we can quite take that as his immediate view now and I think for all the talk about you know personal responsibility and, and getting rid of restrictions we're already seeing almost uh, as he you know gets settled into the job more caution than I think perhaps the movies it was when he very first came in or the expectation I think we are seeing a, a slightly different version of him now that he is in that role. Final question, Rob, does he still have his eye on being PM? I think he's delighted to be health <laughs> There are any circumstances that he can envisage doing anything else. Salma Shah, Katie Balls and Robert Halfon, thanks ever so much for joining me. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was lovely to be on. 
And that's all from us this week. Make sure to look out for next week's episode when Rowena Mason looks back at the political career, so far, of the Labour Party's deputy leader, Angela Rayner. But for now, I want to thank my guests, Katie Bulls, Salma Shah and Robert Halfon. The producers are Yolene Gafan and Danielle Stevens, And I'm Jessica Elgott. Enjoy your summer and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.